Welcome to our 57th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We're your host, I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. <laughs> we have got a lot to talk about tonight. First, we just had to take uh, lightning out of the studio because <laughs> Russell thought it would be a great idea to buy these little plastic balls with bells in them. And if we weren't going to do jingle bells all day long, <laughs> yeah. talking a wish. When is our Christmas episode? Not till next episode, right? Yeah, it'll be the episode after this one. Wow, because we just did our Thanksgiving episode. Yeah, yeah. I think we forgot to tell everybody it was American uh, Thanksgiving. Shoot. Yeah. Also, the day after was Native American Appreciation Day, yeah, yeah. which uh, we celebrate too. What are we talking about today? We're going to talk about the French AMX 13. Oh, that's right. We had done the AMX 30B, and you know how how I how much I love the AMX 13. Yeah. And, but I'm trying, don't laugh at me yet. I have began my second book, and it is going to be on the Sand War. And this is the battle between India and Pakistan when they had the biggest tank battle. We've talked about this before, but it's so great. And I, I'm just now starting to research the stuff, and it is so hard to find because it is so biased, and a ton of records was lost. You know, there wasn't a lot of really good bookkeeping yeah. and, and history between this war, but you're talking hundreds and hundreds of tanks involved and thousands of people dying. Man. This was the second largest tank battle after Curse, you know. Incredible. And the tanks that are involved, all the different variants and stuff like that, we've got everything from uh, the M60s to the AMX-13 to Centurions to Shermans, Stewarts. Wow. It, it, it's just insane. Well, and yeah. they they had a seriously huge tank battle. Wow. So we're going to talk about yeah, that. Be neat. Um, shout outs. I think we just want to give a shout out to you, the listener. Exactly. We are just so impressed. Uh, we are been monitoring all our, you know, stats and everything. We have really grown. Really have. It is just blowing us away yeah, yeah. on how many thousands or tens of thousands now of downloads and people listening. And it's just crazy. It is. It's just truly incredible. Well, like I said, we're going to do this episode, but we want to just take time out just to do a quick thank you for listening. You know, our old listeners, our new listeners, our, our young listeners. Exactly. You know, um, can people still call us? Yeah, they can get a hold of us by, I'd say probably the easiest way is to go to our website, twotankersandcat.com. Now, people get mistaken on that. It's actually twotankerscat.com or is it what? Twotankersandcat.com. Okay. T-W-O-T-A-N-K-E-R-S. A-N-D-C-A-T dot com. And that's our main page. That's our main website. But you scroll down just a little ways on the front page, and when I give you directions there on how to send us a voicemail. And if we get your voicemail, we're going to put it on air. Yeah, I'm able to, to take it and put it into the editing software, and we'll include your voicemail on the, on the next podcast. And what you do, you just click on the little red button over to the left, and, and you can do this on a phone. Um, the only thing, I believe if you're doing it on an Apple iOS device, to be able to record audio, then you'll have to use the Safari browser. You'll have to open up the site in the Safari browser to be able to record audio. But if you've got Android or you can, if you've got a headset on your computer, you can also 
just go to two tankers and on your computer, uh, hit the little bar that goes up and down that says send voicemail. Another little box will pop up and then there's another button there. that says start recording, but you'll have to have a microphone and all that good stuff on your computer to be able to do it through your computer. Otherwise you can do it through your handheld device too. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. You know, we've talked about how technology has gotten us out there and we're just blown away. Exactly. And you can leave us up to about a 90 second message, I believe. Yeah. Anything more than 90 seconds. Yeah. You're getting, you're getting annoying. (laughs) Just kidding. But no, even if people have a criticism, we won't sugarcoat it. Yeah. We have always included everybody's comments, everything. So even our most valued haters, bless your heart. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a huge shout out to Constantine from Germany. Uh, He left a voicemail, and we'll include that here. Thank you, Constantine, for leaving us the voicemail. Hey, guys. You wanted to hear something from the younger listeners. Um, Here you hear something. I'm Constantine. I'm 12 years old, and I'm from Germany, and I really love your podcast. So, the AMX-13 is a French light tank produced from 1952 to 1987. It served with the French Army as the Char 13T-75 Model 51 and was exported to more than 25 other nations. Kind of tells you that people were wanting these little scout tanks. Yeah, Uh, Named after its initial weight or its initial weight of 13 tons and featuring a tough, reliable chassis. It was fitted with an oscillating turret. <laughs> That's kind of cool. I know. And uh, with a revolver type magazine. So that's kind of wow. cool. Yeah, that is. Which were also included and used on the uh, Australian uh, SK 105 cannon, including prototypes and export versions and that. Uh, there are over a hundred variants, including a self propelled. Gun, anti-aircraft systems, APCs, ATGMs. This thing, I'm going to tell everybody right now. The AMX-13, and I hate bringing up this video game World of Tanks because people are like, oh, eh." I'm telling you, we play it, we love it. One of my favorite tanks is the AMX-13. And we're going to tell you about the different variants. Russell, go ahead and start us off. France tried, after the war, to integrate the lessons learned in a new tank doctrine, integrating new models, which emphasized firepower and mobility. At the same pre-war tactics regarding well-armed fighting reconnaissance armored cars, which could act as anti-tank units as well, were also utilized. The German adaptation of high-velocity AT guns on various light chassis also indicated some pathways for French engineers to work with. The French army fully exploited the new promising oscillating turret concept to fit this doctrine. You know what? Blitzkrieg. Fast, you know, lightweight tanks getting out there, hitting, you know, bunkers, uh, fortifications, other tanks, and racing all over the battlefield. Yeah. Okay, we got to stop in the middle of the broadcast again. The cat, the door was shut. The cat figured out how to get in the door. So you're going to hear her rubbing against, (laughs) hear that? That's her rubbing Uh, against Russell's chair. What a cat. She's going to be needy as all get out right now. 
She just woke up from her nap, so. Oh, great. Now she's hungry and fussy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sounds like me when I get up in the morning. Worse than a little kid. Oh, we love you, lighting. Look at this. Uh, we've got to do more video. We, we, we really don't yeah. put up enough video of lightning. Yeah. And she's so playful. And she's <laughs> such a wonderful rescue. Uh, Remember, before you drop three grand on buying some fancy cat breed, there's a cat in your local pound yes. that, that needs attention and love. Yep. I mean, she she's a rescue. Lightning was on sale. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, you couldn't tell the difference. What, what do you always tell me? Best 20 bucks you uh, ever spent? It is. Yep. That's what I say about my first wife. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. See, I'm already offending people. Here, Russ, why don't you start again? Okay, I think I will. The oscillating turret was basically a way to integrate a larger gun in a smaller turret, allowed by the use of an autoloader, while the lower part of the... Cat just jumped on the mic. I'm sorry, go ahead. While the lower part of the turret was conventional and still fully traversed. What it meant was that the whole upper oscillating turret was depressed or elevated as a single block comprising much of its equipment and personnel. In a conventional turret, the gun was elevated and depressed independently inside, the turret providing only traverse. The advantages of such a system were to provide a much smaller, thus lighter, kind of turret which can mount a bigger gun compared to the size of the chassis, just like tank destroyers. The French army designed a whole array of experimental and semi-experimental heavy tanks equipped with the heavy guns using oscillating turrets, namely the AMX-50, Samua SM, and Lorraine 40T. You know, we need to do an episode on those. Yeah, we do. You know, we're doing so many French tanks, yeah. and people are like, why are you doing so many French tanks? Because they're cool. Yeah, <laughs> they really are. But this concept only proved successful on large series light vehicles like the eight-wheeled Panhard EBR and the AMX-13. The U.S. Army also experimented with the concept on the T-69, T-54E1, and the T-57 at the same time, but ultimately dropped it. The AMX-13 was probably the best-known vehicle mounting such a turret since it was also the most used worldwide still used by some armies today yeah i i think indonesia still uses it i mean it it's perfect oh lightning just tried to jump up on the table and missed oh, she just got a head full of table poor thing oh ready one two three there oh, she is oh man <laughs> lay down and be good it remains the most produced tank by any country in Western Europe and by far the biggest French tank production of any time. At the same time, it showed the limits of the concept, hard to fit in any conventional tactical structure, not to mention NATO. Okay, I know there's the AMX 1357, AMX 1375, the AMX uh, 1390. It looks like the last part of the AMX 13 is the caliber of its weapon. Uh, tell us about the guns and the AMX-13, Russ. Initially, the tank had a 75mm or 2.95 inch rifled gun, and overall 2,000 vehicles of this configuration were built for the French Army. In the course of modernization in 1965, a new 90mm or 3.54 inch rifled gun was mounted on a modified FL-10 turret. This gun had a new muzzle brake and heat-insulated housing. Five types of ammunition were used, standard armored piercing, anti-personnel canister, a high explosive round, a cumulative or heat round, and smoke rounds. 32 shots were stored. 
21 inside the turret and 11 in the barrelettes. The tank had two 7.62 millimeter or 0.3 inch machine guns, one coaxial and one in the anti-aircraft mount, fed with 200 round bands, and they stored about 3,600 rounds on board for the machine guns. You know what? I'm loving this tank again oh, and again. Oh, man, I know. I remember when we went down to Fort Benning and saw that. Yes. That was another case. So cool. That I is mean, such a great I, place. You see these in a in a video game, but once you see them in real life, it's a whole different, yeah. whole different deal, man. Just trust me, my fat butt couldn't fit through the turret. <laughs> they would actually have to take the turret off, drop <laughs> yeah. me inside, and put it on. It's a little bitty tank. Yeah, they are. Tell us about the big gun that they finally got. Yeah, the 105 millimeter or 4.13 inch version was accompanied by other improvements and announced at the 1985 Satori exhibition near Paris. These included a new diesel engine coupled with a fully automatic transmission, new hydro-pneumatic suspension for improved cross-country mobility, recognizable by their modified torsion arms and four smaller return rollers above, as well as new improved storage compartments. Last but not least, the new 105mm or 4.13 inch high velocity gun allowed this model to punch well above its weight. This was the biggest export success of the French tank industry so far. See, that's what I need. The AMX 13105. Oh, man. Great gun, great mobility. But I think everybody wants to know about the armor. Yeah. Or the lack of. Lack of, oh, yeah. Okay, go ahead and tell us about the armor. The MX-13 protection was quite weak compared to its firepower. It was made of regular bulletproof reinforced steel sheets with a frontal thickness of about 40 millimeters or 1.5 inches thick. Inch and a half. Oh, man. Whereas the sides and turrets were about 20 to 25 millimeters or 0.79 to 0.98 inches thick. You know, I think my deer rifle could go through that. Oh, man. So... If you have an AMX 13105, uh, important rule number one, don't get shot. <laughs> the rear of the tank had 15 millimeters or 0.59 inches of armor, while the top turret, hull deck, and bottom were only about 10 millimeters or 0.39 inches thick. Only the frontal armor was able to withstand heavy machine gun and small auto cannon projectiles, the rest of the tank being vulnerable to most projectiles. The MX-13 was not protected by NBC, and night vision was optional. <laughs> night vision was optional. Wow. Uh, well, you know, if you wanted to pay for it, you got it. Yeah. Now, I'm sure the French army had it in there. I'm sure, yeah. Uh, you know, and would stop most heavy gun or heavy machine gun. So you whip out the 50 cal, oh, you're putting holes in this thing. Yeah. All right, you know what? I, I still love this tank. Nice. So no real armor. What about the engine, Russ? Give us the engine. The engine and transmission compartment was at the front right of the chassis. The motorization was provided by a proven eight-cylinder gasoline liquid-cooled engine, giving 250 horsepower. The manual transmission comprised five forward gears and one reverse gear. What? Just one. A French tank, but just one just reverse? one reverse. Wow. wow. So they knew this was going to be a killer. Yeah. And it also had a steering gear differential. The powertrain being at the front determined the position of drive sprockets, steering wheels with the track tensioning mechanisms behind. The torsion bar suspension comprised the first and last road wheel with a hydraulic shock absorber each. 
Each steel track was 350 millimeters or 13.7 inches wide and contained 85 links, receiving rubber shoes when running on asphalt roads. Man, so they made a good track. Yeah. And they didn't want it tearing up the roads, so they could put little rubber shoes on it and race down there. It's got shock absorbers, so you're talking about smooth ride. Yeah. Great gun. Tell us some more. The maximum speed was 60 kilometers per hour or 37 miles per hour. And the fuel tank capacity was 480 liters, reserved sufficient for nearly 400 kilometers or 248 miles. So, with a tank of gas uh, of 480 liters, they're going 400 kilometers, or like we said, yeah, yeah. almost 250 miles per tank of gas. Yeah. All right, cool. Pretty good. The AMX-13 had a ground clearance of 370 millimeters, or 15 inches could cross a trench of about 1.6 meters wide or 5 foot 3 inches wide and climb a vertical obstacle 0.65 meters or 26 inches tall or 60 degree side slope or 4 to 0.6 meter deep or 24 inch deep river. Okay. I have love now for the AMX-13. So give us some history about the AMX-13. The AMX-13 was produced from 1952 to 1964 and under license in Argentina until 1985. It has experienced many upgrades and was exported to 25 countries. Out of more than 7,000 vehicles produced, half were exported. 7,000? Wow! The AMX-13 chassis was used for conversions including self-propelled artillery and anti-aircraft guns, armored personnel carriers, and bridge carriers, and several other variants. Wait a minute, this little light tank had a bridge... Bridgler. Man. Wow. All right. Mad props. Go ahead. This late production model had significant improvements in firepower, mobility, and armor, and was solely aimed at the export market. Externally, it received a new hull with a modified front glacis for improved ballistic protection, new hydro-pneumatic units instead of torsion bars and sand guards. Moreover, the thermal-sleeved 105mm gun with updated optics and improved laser rangefinder was also part of the package. I know about the M4 Sherman AMX-13 turret uh, as an upgrade that was used by Egypt and is in a tank museum in Israel. That is so weird. They, They grabbed the old M4 Sherman and were unhappy with the gun, so they put on this AMX-13 with, you know, the autoloader and stuff. Man, you know... I'm, it's compatible and stuff like that. But tell us some more. The AMX-13 actually saw action in the decolonization war of Algeria between 1954 and 1962 in a limited way due to the absence of opposition and the rough nature of the Algerian countryside from where the Algerian national guerrillas operated. When the AMX-13 was upgraded to the 90mm slash SS-11 system, its role as an active screening force became more intertwined with the normal operations of the AMX-30, which were faster than the former U.S. tanks in operation. These relatively cheap vehicles were more often committed in foreign theaters of operation, mainly in Africa. It also began a second-hand carrier in the hands of well-equipped mercenary forces involved in various operations in Africa in the 1970s and 80s. After 1985, the AMX-13 was gradually decommissioned and put in reserve. However, Nexter, the former GIOT Industries, 
still maintained update kit parts for various export customers until the late 1990s. The AMX-13 was not an overall success, though. The revolver loading system imposed frequent reloading operations on the outside, making the crew easy target. The gun was accurate and good enough for World War II-era mediums, but showed deficiencies against modern main battle tanks, partly compensated by missiles. Elevation was limited by the turret design, and maintenance was not easy. The protection was light, so it forbade any engagements against main battle tanks and modern medium tanks on open fields, requiring instead well-prepared ambush camouflage positions, helped by its tiny silhouette and surrounding vegetation. Another severe drawback was its complete lack of MBC protection, but it was nevertheless cheap, adaptable, fast, and largely punched above its weight. So this is a true light tank. And they're talking about, well, some of the problems was it couldn't go head-to-head with main battle tanks. Wasn't uh, designed to. It wasn't designed yeah. to. It was what it said. Well, uh, this tank wasn't very good. They had to go and hide in a bunch of vegetation and wait for a main battle tank and then shoot it and kill it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what little light tanks were designed to do. That's their doctrine. Yeah. So they're sitting here trying to knock it, and uh, I... I love this tank. Yeah. You know, it, it's quick. You know, they're like, well, you know, it only went, you know, so many miles per hour or uh, kilometers per hour. This is a quick little tank that you can take on paved roads that's easy to transport. You can put put it on a truck trailer and haul it out to wherever you need. They're not expensive, and they can kill main battle tanks. Yeah. Israel acquired and operated some 400 AMX-13s. Then its first modern light tanks received just before the Sinai campaign in 1956. They complemented the heavier British centurions of the first generation. They fought in the 1953 Suez Canal Offensive later in 1956, but also all along the 1967 war, where three AMX-13 battalions fought actively. Their battle records, notably the 4th Mechanized Brigade, showed that they did have some troubles with Syrian Egyptian T-54 and T-55s and M-48s. Our our patents. The patents, yeah. Both on the Jordanian front and the Golan Heights. They saw limited use in 1973. By the 1980s, the AMX-13s grew obsolete. Okay, you're you're talking about they were having a little trouble with the T-55. What tank didn't? Yeah. You know... The T-55, you can say what you can, the thing would kill you. Yeah, exactly. You know, and if you're in an AMX-13, you got a clear shot. So, yeah, they probably had some troubles out in the middle of the desert, having to race around and shoot on the move and stuff like that. Yeah. But, wow, I'm impressed with this tank. You know, if you guys got a problem with AMX-13, we would love to hear your reason that you hate it and give us a chance to, you know, debate this with you. Yeah. And look up the definition of a of a light tank anyway. I mean, if you've got issues with this little tank, I mean, it's the and, and what they were designed for. Well, like they're saying, well, the M forty eight Patton was uh, way better. That's a main battle. Yeah, tank. yeah. It's not its doctrine. These little light tanks were designed to go out, find the big tanks, go back for reconnaissance, and let their big tanks know what the heck they're exactly. what's going on. And if they had like a a bunker. They could say, okay, this is where the bunker is on the map. It's got machine guns in it. We need you to use the bushes to move up and then fire around in it and take it out. Or they've got four T-55s that are set up here and they're going to be coming down the road. These guys 
with the revolver system, yeah. are going boom, boom, boom. And they're like, well, they did it from a bush and they were hit. That's their job. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Uh, good stuff. But is the AMX still in service anywhere today? Indonesia is still using 500 AMX 13s of the early 105 millimeter version. The biggest user of the main AMX 13 variant, the VCI SPG, is Mexico with 409 still in use. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, we, we always give you homework or tell you to crack a book. Look up the Mexican Army's uh, VCI SPG. It's just an AMX 13 that they turned into a artillery piece. It is so cool looking. Uh, it's nice to see that this tank is so that was so good yeah. and made 7,000 are still in service. But we've talked a little bit about the design, you know, the stats. That's my favorite part. Give us the stats, Russell. It was designed in 1946. Manufacturer was Atelier de Construction Rouen, produced between 1952 and 1987, with about 7,700 total built, and 3,400 of those were exported, and 4,300 were used in the French military. 7,700. That's that's a lot. That's a lot of modern tanks. It had a mass of 13.7 tons, or 30,000 pounds empty. And combat ready, it was about 14 and a half tons or 32,000 pounds. Had a length of 6.36 meters or 20 foot 10 inches with the gun. And 4.88 meters or 16 foot with just the hole. Uh, The width was 2.51 meters or 8 foot 3 inches wide. Had a height of 2.35 meters or 7 foot 9 inches. Uh, Still not 10 Uh, foot tall and (laughs) bulletproof like my lead. Yeah, yeah. It had a crew of three, which included the commander, gunner, and the driver. And the armor was about 10 to 40 millimeters thick, or 0.39 to 1.57 inches thick. Yeah, so not a lot of armor. Not like a lot we, of armor, yeah. um, But when it first came out, we've talked about its guns. Tell us about the main armaments. Yeah, it first came out with a 75 millimeter SA-50 tank gun. It also later on included the 90 millimeter or the 105 millimeter. That we talked about. Yeah, that we actually talked about. And they carried about 32 rounds of ammunition with them. And we talked about the machine guns. Did this have anything like smoke grenade chargers, you know? Yeah, it had two smoke grenade dischargers along with the anti-aircraft machine gun and the coaxial machine gun. So, you know, it fires. Yeah. And then they're trying to spot it. It pops its smoke and then disappears in a thing of smoke. Yeah. I, I, I'm i seeing light tank doctrine right uh, there. I know. Now, tell us about the engine again. It had a SOFAM model 8GXB eight cylinder water cooled petrol engine that pumped out about 250 horsepower. Acceptable. Power to weight ratio was about 17 horsepower per ton. Okay. Had a torsion bar suspension. An operational range of about 400 kilometers or 250 miles. And the maximum speed was about 60 kilometers per hour or 37 miles per hour. You know, people are like, well, that's not as fast as, you know, this tank or that tank. I'm telling you, when you got, what, a three-man crew in there? Yeah. And you're you're, you're yeah. doing 37 miles an you're hour. You're rocking and rolling pretty uh, quick. Uh, across the desert, yeah. bouncing and jumping. Yeah. Wow. Pretty good stats. Russ, I want you to tell us what the tank was actually meant for the tank was actually meant to meet a requirement for an air portable vehicle to support paratroopers 
The first prototype ran from 1948. The compact chassis had torsion bar suspension with five road wheels and two return rollers. The engine runs the length of the tank on the right side with the driver on the left. It features an uncommon two-part FL10 oscillating turret where the gun is fixed to the turret and the entire upper turret changes elevation. The turret is set to the rear of the vehicle and holds the commander and the gunner. Now I know why the AMX-13 was what they call an autoloader or a revolver loader. Uh, Explain that a little bit. The original 75mm gun was loaded by an automatic loading system fed by two six-round magazines located on either side of the automatic loader in the turret's bustle. The 12 rounds available in the drum magazines meant that the crew could engage targets quickly However, once those rounds were expended, the vehicle had to retreat to cover and the crew had to reload shells from outside the vehicle. <laughs> Ouch. Man. <laughs> we, 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 all right. We fired our 12 rounds. Let's go ahead and stop and reload. And put air, the, put air. the pedal to the metal. Yeah. <laughs> but again, that's what it was supposed to do. Yeah. Exactly. You're talking about a tank that gets out there, kicks out 12 rounds. Yeah. And when you're shooting 12 rounds at, what, two, three tanks? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, by by the time they locate where you're at and they're aiming their turrets and they, they lock on and they use their scopes. Sure. You're, you're fried. Yeah. You know, this thing is bam, 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 bam. So when the drum, drum was uh, empty, you had to run away to reload. Now, there is a French retreat joke there, but I'm not going to touch it. <laughs> uh, I, I got in trouble last time when we said that. They're like, oh, I didn't run away. <laughs> I'm not going to touch it. Production began at the Atelier de Construction Rouen in 1952 with the first tanks delivered the following year. In 1964, production was transferred to the Crusat Loire at Chalon sur saone as A.R.E., switched to the production of the AMX-30 main battle tank, and the numbers produced declined significantly. So they were making these light tanks uh, because they were high quality. They could be loaded with the paratroopers. They were easy to move, but they saw a need for the AMX-30, which we've already done the episode. And and that's a great tank. If you haven't heard that episode, you, you need to go back and listen to that episode. After 1966, AMX-13s in French service were upgunned with a 90mm F3 medium pressure gun firing more effective high explosive and a tank rounds. This variant was designated the AMX-13-90. The F3 was similar to the DEFA D921-F1 low pressure gun developed for the Panhard AML-90 and even utilized the same ammunition, though it possessed a significantly higher muzzle velocity. By the late 1960s, an export model of the AMX-13 was also available with an even larger 105mm gun and FL-12 turret. Although there were many variants on the turret, the basic chassis was almost unchanged until 1985, when changes including a new diesel engine, fully automatic transmission, and new hydro-pneumatic suspension were introduced. Production halted with the AMX-13 model 1987. After sales support and upgrades are still offered through the Giot Industries, the AMX-13 tank was phased out of service with the French Army in the 1980s. Current French armored vehicles with a similar role are the ERC-90 and the AMX-10RC. 
awesome stuff. You know, I'm in love with this tank. You know, you can say what you want about the French tanks and stuff like that. I like this. I like the AMX-30. I think they're... I hate this. I know. I use this terminology. I think they're sexy. Awesome stuff for us. And that brings us to our second point, like I said, that really interests me is the sand war. Like I said, we don't have a lot on this war and... When Russ is telling you about it, he's researched it quite a bit. I've looked into it, and I'm starting to do a book on it. But I think it's going to be one of those deals where I'm going to have to actually fly to India and try to find some of the veterans of this and get firsthand accounts. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of history should be. But uh, the other stuff, man, you know what? Just tell us a little bit about this war. The Sand War was a border conflict between Algeria and Morocco in October 1963. It resulted largely from the Moroccan government's claim to portions of Algeria's Tindouf and Bouchar provinces. The Sand War led to heightened tensions between the two countries for several decades. It was also notable for a short-lived Cuban and Egyptian military intervention on behalf of Algeria and for ushering in the first multinational peacekeeping mission carried out by the Organization of African Unity, a Berber rebellion in the Kabyle Mountains. Algerian authorities suspected that Morocco was inciting the revolt and was a main cause for the war. Despite internal discontent with the Algerian government, most of the country supported the war effort, which Algerians generally perceived as an act of Moroccan aggression. The Algerian army had ordered a large number of AMX-13 light tanks from France in 1962, but at the time of the fighting, only 12 were in service. Morocco's armed forces were smaller, but comparatively well-equipped and frequently took advantage of their superior firepower on the battlefield. They possessed 40 T-54 main battle tanks that they had purchased from the Soviet Union, 12 Su-100 tank destroyers, and 17 AMX-13s, and a fleet of gun-armed Panhard EBR armored cars. Morocco also possessed modern strike aircraft, while Algeria did not. September 25, 1963, with intense fighting around the oasis towns of Tindouf and Figug, the Royal Moroccan Army soon crossed into Algeria in force and succeeded in taking the two border posts of Hasibida and Tindjoub. Egypt even began sending troops and defense hardware in late October and to bolster the Algerian military. The Algerian forces began to retaliate against the Moroccan advances, taking back the ports of Hasibida and Tindjoub on October 8th. On October 22nd, hundreds of Cuban troops arrived at Oran just years after the victory of their own revolution. Many Cubans identified with the Algerians and were eager to support them The Cuban government formed a special instruction group to be sent to Algeria. Its forces included 22 T-34 tanks, 18 120mm mortars, a battery of 57mm recoilless rifles, anti-aircraft artillery with 18 guns, and 18 122mm field guns with the crews to operate them. The unit was made up of 686 men under the command of Ephigenio Amiris, although they were initially described as an advisory contingent, 
To train the Algerian army, Fidel Castro also authorized their deployment in combat actions to safeguard Algeria's territorial integrity. Now, we've talked about this before around South Africa and how the Cubans got involved in that and some of the South African border stuff. But uh, so Castro, again, sends tanks, guns, everything, and they're supposed to be training or military advisors, but tells them, get in the combat. The Cubans offloaded their equipment and transported it to the southwestern front by rail. The troops provided training to the Algerians, and their medical team offered the population free health care. While Castro had hoped to keep Cubans' intervention covert, and a number of the Cuban personnel wore Algerian uniforms, they were observed by French military and diplomatic staff in Iran, and word of their presence soon leaked to the Western press. Algeria and Cuba planned a major counteroffensive, Operation Dignidad aimed at driving the Moroccan forces back across the border and capturing Berjouin. On the other side, Moroccan forces had planned a second offensive on Tindouf and occupied positions about four kilometers from the settlement. The foreign ministers of the Organization of African Unity, or the OAU, mediated a formal peace treaty on February 20, 1964. The treaty was signed in Mali, following a number of preliminary discussions between Hassan and Ben Bellaterms of this agreement included a reaffirmation of the previous established borders in Algeria's favor and restoration of the status quo. The demilitarized zone was maintained in the meantime, monitored by the OAU's first multinational peacekeeping force. Okay, I want to explain something. When we were in this episode, I talked about the sand war and people might have got confused what I am studying is the Amex 13s in the the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965. I'm sorry, I was going through the editing and, and I listened to it and it goes, oh, no, no, it sounds like I'm talking about the sand war was by India and Pakistan. No, it wasn't. It was Algeria and Morocco. I am going to do a short little episode, make, maybe make a second point on this Indo-Pakistani war in 1965. And because, like I said, I've just started the research and everything like that. What a great second point yeah. is the sand war between uh, Algeria, Morocco, and, yeah. and the Cubans again. And the Cubans again, yeah. You know, uh, there's a lot of negative stuff about the Cubans, but I will say this. Their people are warm. They're uh, very, very outgoing. And uh, when they think they're they're right they yeah. dig in yeah you gotta remember castro didn't force these guys at gunpoint to go mm-hmm. yeah the people said hey we just went through our revolution and we see what's happened to you we're gonna come over and help it takes a lot of you know guts yeah to put on another country's uniform load up in a tank and go charge yeah it does hats off to the people exactly. we're not giving you know hey great for the cuban government you know we're not Again, we hate talking about governments. We talk about the people. I guess we just have to do our Patreons now? Yeah, we'll do our Patreon shout-outs. And- well, we need to give out shout-outs to uh, Kim Shire, Riley, who, Jacob. What was Jacob's last name? Azaki? I, I, you know, I can never say that. Michael Kelb, of course, Razbaz. Razbaz18. Uh, Evan. Antonio Bernarda. Slam Jamington. Alejandro Martinez. Good guy. Yeah. Uh, Bjorn Ben, ODS Thero, Rick Schmidt, 
love you guys. Yeah. I'm telling you, you, you guys are keeping the show afloat, you know, and I hate, I hate asking for money, but oh, man, if you it's... enjoy the show yeah. and you're wanting to help us out on our research and stuff like yeah. that, yeah. Uh, definitely throw us even two bucks. Yeah. Uh, we have what? $2, $6, and $8, right? Yeah. yeah. $8 being the highest. I think most people can afford two bucks. I know. Yeah, just a couple bucks. It's, no doubt. It, it makes a huge difference. Believe me, it does. It really does. Because, I mean, it, it costs of putting out a podcast, it, it really does start to add up after a while and, with the, and now I the look, hosting sites. and we, We've got one, two, three, four, five screens now. Yeah. Um, we've got multiple PCs. Yeah. We've got these brand new mics. And, and just the cable and all the software oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the software it's, costs you would not believe this people yeah, yeah, everybody says well why don't you use the free uh, yeah. well it's, you it's pay not for what same. you get yeah, yeah. yeah i want the sound quality to be decent at least i mean it can probably still be improved a little bit but yeah it's i want to keep it at least quality <laughs> yeah and again i want to apologize for getting uh I, I don't think I did. I just made it sound like the sand war was between India and Pakistan, and, and it's not. But, again, we will do, you know what? We haven't done the Jackson. Have we done the Jackson tank? I don't believe we tank have. Tank destroyer? No. You know what? Let's do the Jackson, and we'll okay. talk about the Indo-Pakistan okay. uh, 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 War of 65. Sounds like that, a plan. That's the one I want to do my book on. Okay. But, you know, I'm going to have to get over there yeah. and go hands-on. Yeah. Ooh, maybe I can get Vladimir Putin to sponsor ah, us. There you go. You know, since he's going to give us a T-14 to I'll send him over. I'll let you be the one that reaches out to him. To I, I'm reaching out every <laughs> every episode I'm reaching out. I'm like, please help us out. <laughs> but no, we really do appreciate our supporters. And without you guys, it wouldn't even be possible. Absolutely. Okay. Well, great episode. Yeah, I guess that brings us to the closing. This is Charlie. And this is Russell. As always, happy tanking and have a great week. Mm-hmm.